You're listening to the Faith and Other Oddities podcast, brought to you by the Raven Creek Social Club, where we talk about faith and other oddities. For questions, comments, or to be part of the conversation, join us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, where you can find us at Raven Creek SC. Now for your hosts, Emily Dixon and Nathan Underwood. Well, hey, everyone. Welcome back to Faith and Other Oddities, the show where Emily and I read the Bible and talk about it and distribute it amongst the peoples of the internet <laughs> for their own edification, we hope. Yeah. How you doing, Don't Emily? Say, man, you know, I, I'm learning I need to stay off Facebook is what I'm learning. So, <laughs> and so when you said that, it's like, I, can we just like strategically drop some of these episodes on people and say, you have to listen. So, uh, well, I don't think I don't think it's a good idea to force religion on people. Well, you know, <laughs> darn it. No, I I, I agree. I, I I do agree. Uh, it's just you know, occasionally I get a little overzealous and like I want to shake people. It's like, why can't you get these principles? These ideas they're simple. Uh, yeah. It, it, what was the? We made the joke one time. It'd be a lot. Of, a minute. What was it? Ministry would be a little bit easier if we could practice it the way a house practices medicine. <laughs> right. <laughs> well, and the thing is, that's like our natural inclination. That's how we would do it without the love of God. So this is why people need to be happy that God has has really, you know, worked with us on being better on that aspect. And is continuing because, to work with us. <laughs> yes, because we need it. So Yeah, there, there's, there are many natural inclinations <laughs> that I... Uh, have managed that the Lord has managed to help keep me, help me keep under control. Well, and I, I do think, and, you know, not to brag on us too much, but, you know, there's times that I know I catch myself going, okay, um, is this too much? And I'll send you a message of what I want to send, or you'll do the same thing with me. And it's like, you know, let's pull it back a yeah, little bit. Yeah. We, we ask for <laughs> feedback, get it out of our system. And then, going to vent to you so that the love of Jesus can be found in my heart again. And then for some reason, after we send it to each other, cutting and pasting it into the, the other text field just seems like way too much work. Yeah. Yeah. So no, <laughs> we, we, I, I think it's a pretty good system uh, that we've got there. I, and I think more people would benefit if they had someone else to bounce stuff off of. Yeah. And it, but, and it doesn't matter. And it doesn't matter what I send because you're my sibling. It's not like you're going to stop being my friend. Right. I'm kind of obligated. <laughs> you locked into this. I've got how many, 40 years, you know, into this, I, I can't really get out. Is that, I mean, the time of trial and testing is over? Is that what the, 40 years? Oh, so. man. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I'm, com I'm coming up on that. Maybe that, uh, yeah. is, does life get easier after 40 years? Not in my case. <laughs> That's when everything went crazy on a different level. <laughs> so uh, yeah, so no, I, I went to, I went to the doctor. Uh, this was a few months ago, and the nurse is checking me in and doing all the stuff. And she asked, "Ask how old I am," and I told her I'm 38. And she goes, "Oh yeah, you're due to start breaking down soon." I'm like, "Hey, thanks. This, Appreciate that. Where's that in the manual?" <laughs> Somebody always there with an encouraging word, always. <laughs> I tell you, I tell you. So anyhow, well, that's uh, that's a lot of weird personal stuff. Uh, so, who we catch are? Us, yeah. So anyway, we we should talk about the Bible because that's why people are here. I think. Um, I, yeah, more so than you hearing us talk. Uh, yeah, well, we could start. Yeah, catch us talk, up. Well, we'd start talking about how. Uh, First Samuel's 21, I'm oh, sorry, Second Samuel 21 and Second Samuel 24 play off each other. But before we got there, we wanted to look at how they play off two other stories. And those two other stories are the Akeda, uh, more commonly known among Christians as the binding of Isaac, or um, at the Exodus, specifically the plague of hail. And so uh, we're going to look at these two stories with those passages in Samuel, and we're going to try to make some sense of how all of this flows together. And then I sat down and I put together this fun recap where I take all four stories, 21, 24, Akeda, the plagues, and I brought together their connecting themes 
And then we'll get to actually looking at 21 and 24 together because that's how big of a geek I am. So okay. it was a lot here, of fun. And, it, and if you're here, we presume you're at least close to that. Yeah, I think, let's see, I wound up writing 132 pages of notes on this particular thing. So we're probably going to be here for a while. Okay. Um, yeah, so let's be, begin with the Akeda. And, uh, you know, this this story is, um, you know, very foundational to Judaism as a whole. I mean, this is kind of like the defining moment because this is where Abraham really proves his devotion and commitment to God. It, it's the beginning of the creation of that sacred family that's going to claim the sacred space. And we've got to remember, since Eden, the story of the Bible is really about reclaiming that sacred space, and it's finding that sacred geography. So uh, some people already see where this is going in context with 2 Samuel 24. But um, the story of Isaac is connected to these passages in Samuel, because number one, it's, it's a chiasm. Um, so we have the same structure. Remember that chiastic form is where you have kind of that V, where you get the central point, and then the two side branches, uh, as you progress out, they connect, interconnect with the corresponding spot across. And so uh, we have that connection with structure and form, which is not uncommon in the Bible, but it, it's not super common in the Bible. So then we have the purpose of God's blessing to Abraham through his family was to bless the nations. We find that in Genesis 12, 5. And the purpose of na the nation of Israel was to bless the nations of the world, Genesis 18, 18. So we have that, that connection. Then if you look at what the king of Israel was supposed to do, he is supposed to fulfill that purpose in a national way. Uh, we find that in Isaiah 55, Psalm 145. 45.5, uh, Zechariah 8, 20 through 23, Ezekiel 37, 27, and 28, and then in, in conjunction with Samuel 2. So what we find is in Jesus, we have this, this collation um, of Abraham's promise and Abraham's purpose, along with the Davidic promise and purpose in him. And we see that explained in Galatians 3.14, which says, so that in Christ, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles that he might receive the promise so that we might receive the promise spirit through faith. But we also know that Christ is king. And so all of this, this kind of plays off of each other, this idea that there's going to be the sacred people that God is going to use, not just so that they can be blessed, but then the, excuse the dogs in the background, um, the blessing can extend into all the world and be available to all people through these sacred people. So it, it's a lot of fun when you try to figure out how this works in a grand theme, because we don't often talk about this theme as running through the scripture. We talk about individual stories and we might touch on, you know, kind of some basic elements in the stories that illustrate this, but we don't see it as this ongoing progression that culminates in, you know, Acts 2. And so it, it becomes something that is not so abstract, but it's actually something that we're involved in, that we get to participate in. So the, the third central, uh, the third point is the central theme of Abraham's story, and it's succession. Because he already has, you know, first he started out with not being able to have children, then he has Ishmael, and God tells him to kick Ishmael out. So the son that he loves, because remember, he really loved Ishmael. We're going to talk about that more later. Um, and he's sent him away. But then whenever he does receive this child of promise through Sarah, the bride who was included in that covenantal promise of God to Abraham, God says, hey, I want you to, to kill him. And so this theme of succession and what, who is going to succeed Abraham and how is the promise is going to be fulfilled without an heir, this is very much central to Abraham's story. And it's a huge issue in David's story because if he doesn't have a successor, an, an heir to claim the throne, is he a king? And we've talked about if you don't have that succession, you're not really a king. You're just a warlord. You're, you're in the vein of the judges. It's not that same... Um, you can't create a dynasty with one person. And, you know, we've got to remember at this point, Amnon is dead. The child with uh, Bathsheba, the first one, is dead. 
Uh, Absalom, the heir apparent, he's dead. So at this point, who is going to, to follow David? Now we know about Solomon and we had a hint in first Samuel, uh, in second Samuel previously that Solomon is going to take the throne, but Solomon's very problematic for a number of reasons, not the least of which is that his mother is still referred to and will continue to be referred to as the wife of Uriah. So there's some issue there that is going to have to be overcome. And there's going to be some major tensions in court that when we start talking about when, when Solomon gets to the throne, what he's going to have to go through to get there and why all that's problematic. Because there is another son, but this is not a son that we've heard anything about. This is not a son who seems to be worthy of the throne. And, but this, this idea of succession it has huge implications within the New Testament for believers becoming co-heirs with Christ. And it really drives home the point that the, the, the central theme of the Bible has always been about the creation of a family. It's always been about being able to have those people who, who share in a vision and purpose to bless the world. And I, I, I think we forget that. I mean, and why shouldn't we? I mean, when you talk to a lot of Christians and they're discussing theology and they're talking about things that other people should know, there's not a love, lot of love sometimes presented there. There's not a lot of blessing that's being extended to other people. It's kind of like, if you don't believe what I do exactly the way I do, and I'm not talking like, you know, the, the, the core themes. I'm not talking about, you know, the virgin birth, the life and death and resurrection of Jesus. I'm talking like peripheral issues. Then, you know, they, they can just get ugly. And, and I'm guilty too. I mean, I'm not going to say, hey, yeah, follow me and do what I do. Don't do that. Do what Jesus did because I'm always going to screw it up. But the, the, the thing is, we are supposed to be a blessing. And so that begins, is the roots of that is in that promise to Abraham. Other uh, connecting theme is number, numbering. Uh, God demonstrates that Abraham's descendants are going to be innumerable. Uh, Genesis 13, 6, I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth, so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offsprings can be counted. Well, David's attempting to do just that. He's trying to, to count the descendants of Abraham. So that's another connecting theme there. Um, the totality or the scope of the promised land um, after the promise that his descendants cannot be counted is another theme. You know, Abraham is told to walk the length and the breadth of the land that God is going to give him. And it culminates with this altar being built in, at the Oaks of Mamre. David tells Joab, I want you to go from Dan to Beersheba, from the farthest north to the farthest south. And so essentially the length of the land. And it also culminates with a sacrifice at the threshing floor. So the sixth connecting point are threes. Abraham uh, traveled with Isaac three days to, to get to Mount Moriah. And then we have three days of pestilence in the land. And the, the three days in each account um, are a season of death that end in life, which is really interesting because when you we often think about life than death, but in the Bible so often that's flipped. You have to go through that death to get to the light. There, there's no bypassing. So, um, and in each case, that, that process of dying and death, they end on that third day so that life can be renewed. Because when Abraham took that first step out and he's got Isaac and he's going to, um, he knows he's going to take Isaac to Mount Moriah to kill him. You know, he's already relinquished control of, of Isaac. He's basically in his mind said, yes, he, he is dead to me, essentially. And then David, of course, knew that 70,000 men of Israel had died due to the pestilence. So at the end of those three days, what's God do? And, um, oh, I'm getting ahead of myself, but it does end in life. We'll, we'll get there. The fourth point is, I think I've got my, um, yeah, I, <laughs> I okay. can't number things. Got your notes yeah. out of order? No, I got them in order, but I saw three days and then I wrote point four. So anyway, so the next point is <laughs> supernatural sight. Abraham sees the ram behind him. David lifts up, lifts up his eyes. Abraham also lifted up his eyes. 
and he sees the angel of the Lord um, at Jerusalem. And then we do find that the angel of the Lord, another connecting point, is present in both of these accounts. We also have obedience and surrender that enable Abraham and David to, to be delivered out of their uh, situation. Um, then we have Abraham is in the process of offering his son, and David asks that God take his house, his father's house, which encompasses not only David and his brothers and sisters and his mom and dad, it's actually even his own sons. So David actually offers up his sons, is willing to offer up his sons if God will stop killing the people in Israel. And so um, the thing with this is without the sons, there's no way for God to, to fulfill his promise. At least not that we can see. You've got to have that successor. Abraham can't be a great nation without a successor. David can't be the king of Israel without a successor. And so um, you, you, you get those connecting themes. In Genesis 22.10, Abraham stretched out his hand or he reached out his hands. Uh, he shalak is, is the word there in Hebrew. In uh, 22, God says, do not stretch out your hand. Do not lay your hand is what the ESV says. But in 2 Samuel 24, 16, the angel of the Lord is the one who stretched out their hand at, to Jerusalem. It's the same word. And so you have those connecting themes. So, you know, the, the don't, don't do it, that, that stopping of laying on the hand at Shalak. Hmm. Um, the ram is offered in place of Isaac. The oxen are offered in place of the people of Jerusalem. We have this, this is the final time that God speaks to Abraham. It's the final time that God speaks to David, which is an interesting point. After the Akedah, Abraham purchases the grave for Sarah, and this is, he purchases it from the Hittites. We talked a little bit about this. He purchases it from the Hittites. The Hittites said, hey, wait, you're a prince among us. We aren't going to take any money from you. You just go ahead and take it. And Abraham says, no, I'm going to buy it. Same thing happens at the threshing floor of the Jebusite. And, um, you know, the, the decline, um, each, man, each man declines the respective offer to be given this piece of land. They, they actually purchased it. So those are some pretty obvious ties between the stories. I think everybody can kind of see how I got there. Mm. And <clears throat> so Immediately, when you see those kinds of ties, you have to look at what does this mean and how does this play out. Grab some coffee there. So the Akedah is the defining event in the formation of the Abrahamic family. And as such, it's the defining event in the formation of Israel. And for this reason, it's actually considered to be the last day of creation in Jewish tradition. And we talked about that when we talked about um, Isaac and Ishmael in our previous episodes. In our passage in Samuel, David's willingness to sacrifice himself, his hopes, the, the promises that God had given him, are the foundational moments in the creation of the temple and in establishing Israel as a kingdom of priests. If you don't have a temple, where are the priests going to work? David actually, he sets in motion the, the, the external elements that allow Israel to be seen as a holy nation. And so he is actually defining Israel as a sacred place, uh, just as Abraham's event defined his people as a sacred people. So the, the stories parallel each other, holy people, holy place. And so the, you know, the, like I said, the quest for a sacred space has, has started with Eden. But our final connection uh, between these um, stories actually, go, we need to look at Second Chronicles. 3, 1, and it tells us, and Solomon began to build the house of the Lord, Jerusalem, on Mount Moriah, where the Lord appeared to David, his father, at the place David had appointed on the threshing floor of Oranon, the Jebusite. So in Chronicles, specifically Mount Moriah, the place where Abraham went to offer up Isaac, is said to be the exact same spot where David builds this altar and buys this threshing floor. So we have the connection of geography. They're, they're considered to be the exact same place. Now, given this, I mean, 
it, it, what's really fun, this is where you get into some really great rabbinic stories. And I didn't even have time to like go through all of them because they're, they're, they're just really fabulous. Some of them might be reaching a bit. Uh, you know, we always have to um, kind of use some caution. But the rabbis picked up on this and, and they like ran with it. And they're like, okay, so if this is the place where Abraham offered Isaac and this is the place where David built a temple, then it also has to be the place of creation. It has to be where Cain and Abel offered their sacrifices. This has got to be where Noah built his altar after he got off the ark. Um, they also, through some creative uh, cutting, make this to be Mount Sinai. Uh, basically, the, the mountain was said to be cut in half and, and separated to allow there to be two mountains that were actually one. Uh, probably didn't happen, but that's how much they wanted to put significance on the spot. And I do see it as the mountain of the Lord in Isaiah 2, which I, I can actually see that one. I think that probably is. Now, whether or not um, the rest of the things happen, who knows? I think one of the more fascinating uh, connections that they suggest that this is Bethel, the place where uh, Jacob saw the angels ascending and descending from heaven or Jacob's ladder. And so uh, there's some who go so far as to claim that the, the stone <clears throat> where David had um, laid the altar was actually the stone that Jacob used to rest his head on. Mm -hmm. So, you know, there, there's a whole mythology that's grown out of these traditions and they're really fascinating. Yeah. And, and that's all uh, just rabbinic tradition and, and, and things like that. We don't have any solid evidence on those. Yeah, absolutely. I, I just, I think they're fun. Uh, I think that they uh, are kind of, it's, it's interesting to see what significance they try to attach. And, you know, could it have been, could some of them be true? Absolutely. Some of them could. Are all of them true? No, I, I doubt it. Right. But, well, yeah, it, it's kind of one of those, wouldn't it be really interesting if this all kind of tied together? Yeah. <laughs> but it's well, also and, kind of funny because it's like, it already ties together. We have the words in the... <laughs> Yes. Now, I do want to make it clear. Chronicles makes it very, very clear that Mount Moriah and this threshing floor purchase were the same site. So we do have that. And that that is biblical. That is found in the word. No problem with that connection right there. But because all these traditions grew up, and we, we did a whole episode on this before, and I could not find it because I've slept, and I, maybe you can help with the episode number, about the navel of the world. Mm -hmm. And that in this particular spot, that there's this divine kind of umbilical cord that connects heaven and earth, and um, that the, the heavenly courts are to be mirrored in the, the earthly courts of the temple, and so people could catch a glimpse, and that anything that kind of happened here essentially had a, a greater impact of what was going on in the heavens because it was kind of a direct conduit. You didn't have all the, you know, it was a hard line to, to the heavens versus uh, kind of radio signals, if you will. And this idea that if you did something at this spot, that it was going to be heard, felt, whatever, much quicker and much more effectively than any place else in the earth. Yeah. I and, found it, by the way, Naval of the Earth. It was episode uh, 69. Okay. Over a hundred so over hundred episodes ago. Yeah. hundred. Yeah. I'm not going to do math. <laughs> so... <laughs> That's why I just round things. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But I think, you know, as Christians, there's this tendency to kind of like, well, you know, whatever, that's, that's Old Testament. We don't really need to deal with that. We don't need to worry about that. But I actually think there's some like really profound lessons in this for Christians. Um, not that we take it as scripture, but that just the imagery might be helpful. Because if we stop and consider who or what the, the navel of the world, I'm oh, sorry, who or what the, the third temple is, that's where I was trying to get, then, you know, that's us. Mm -hmm. that, that's, that's who we are. And if things that happen in that sacred space of the temple have a direct line to the heavens and the things that go on inside the temple, the second temple or the first temple had such a profound impact because there was that direct line, how much more is the temple that we embody, that we inhabit within these bodies, going to be able to access that kind of heavenly attention? 
And so I think it's kind of a really great image to, to understand the importance and the significance of the temple, because so often we don't assign any kind of real value to the temple because we're unfamiliar. I mean, yeah, it was great and it was wonderful and it helped to find the nation, but God lived in the temple. God's glory was manifest in the temple. Yeah. Well, I mean, he didn't live in the temple, but that's where he interacted with people. Well, <laughs> it's... It, it, well, then you go back to the ability of God to inhabit one space and still be everywhere. Uh, and so that, that's, the, that's the fun part, because you get to see how God was so present that people actually were afraid to approach because they knew he was there. And so I, I, I do love that, the fact that that building with all, of the, with all this awe and this splendor and the, this crazy manifestation of God is the imagery that we're given about who we're supposed to be as New Testament believers. And so I think we need to take seriously the teachings about the temple from the perspective of how do I then live my life? How do I live my life as a living, breathing temple to God? And so um, I'm just going to do a quick plug for um, Tending Our Nets with Joshua Sherman, because you know he's talking about the image of God, and that's part of that. Uh, it is being the temple is also being in the image of God. And so if you want to learn more about that, uh, go check out what Josh was doing. Now, the one indisputable aspect of the story is what, this is just what blows me away, is the angel of the Lord stopped Abraham before he kills Isaac, okay? And the angel of the Lord is standing between heaven and earth with an outstretched sword towards Jerusalem. In both moments, what we have to remember, this is the pre-incarnate Christ. This is Jesus was actually there participating in the events that would are foreshadowing his own death and resurrection. And so that's just wild to me, because when you think about eternal knowledge and the fact that he knew what he was going to endure on the cross, and yet he's still doing, you know, he's actively involved in indisputable ways in these moments where he sees these images, you know, these kind of warnings of what's going to happen to him, and yet he's still right there, and he's still faithful to follow through in the gospel. That just actually, to me, that's mind-blowing. That It increases that depth of sacrifice, because it's not, it's not some abstraction for Jesus. By mm -hmm. the time he gets to earth, it is a reality. And, and I think we forget that you know, Jesus was not somehow, you know, hanging out in heaven, disconnected to the events leading up to his life, death, and resurrection. He was actually here. He knew what it was going to cost him, and yet he still was shaping, actively shaping history to get us to that point where he could join us. It's not um, God the Father doing it all and Jesus not participating. It, it is the God, the, the triune God, doing it together. And so well, to me that go ahead. It's it's one of those areas where it clearly illustrates like you're saying God manifest and God also it's it's one of those things that's really wild to try to think about is God being of same substance and different persons and the everything, you know, and and I am trying my best to say to talk about it without <laughs> slipping into some kind of of heretical view because it is such a complex uh way of thinking about it but here it is illustrated in the retelling of what's going on uh mm -hmm. like you said it that's really just that i hadn't looked at the story near like with any kind of scrutiny in the past mm -hmm. but when we mm -hmm. read through it last week i was like oh wow this is <laughs> this is <laughs> right. quite the event well and you know we we tend to try to make, well, I don't know if we do it intentionally. It, I think it's kind of just the, 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 the fallout of the way we tell the story. You know, God's doing all these horrible things, all these horrible things in the Old Testament. And then maybe Jesus shows up at the nativity and everything changes. So during the Old Testament, 
Jesus must have been off doing someplace else. You know, he's just sitting on the sidelines waiting to be, you know, called in by the coach. Mm-hmm. But no, he 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 wasn't. And he was actively participating in everything that happened. And this really does does away with the idea that somehow, and, and I've heard this taught, I've seen this on the internet, that Jesus is some kind of helpless victim to God's senseless wrath. And that, you know, he he just happened to get caught up and had to follow through if he was going to save us. No, he was part of this plan from the beginning. Everything that happens it is something that he helped orchestrate himself. And so right here, when we see this, both with the, the Akeda and in Jer- with uh, Jerusalem, it, it just means that Jesus really meant what he said. He and the Father are one. This was their design together. So we can't make that crazy, weird separation that people like to make. That the Old Testament God was bad, maybe even not the true God, but then the New Testament God is good. That's not how it works. He's either God from the beginning of earth and until the end of time, or he's not God at all. Right. That's just the, the truth. So, um, so that that kind of you know lines up our our connection with the Akeda. Okay, so we we see I I think everybody can can see those parallels. Now the other story connected to Second Samuel twenty four is Exodus, and it's helpful if we remember back when we studied this that when we talked about Samuel as a whole, you know, way back there, you know, however many episodes ago that the writer really pulled off of the Exodus to set up kind of his template or, or formula for how he was presenting this. Samuel was the second Moses. Uh, Saul was going to be Pharaoh. And that was kind of the, the framework that he was working from. And the struggle is, is to, to remember all that as we get this far into the book. And uh, so, as we look at these two stories together, I think it's going to be a little bit more obvious and why remembering that is important in second Samuel 24, because I think for David, the the question really is, um, is the kingship in Israel going to be different than the kingship in Egypt? Is the king of Israel going to be a king for, for God, or is he going to be like Pharaoh? And I think chapter 24 really asked the question, you know, will David pass the test? Will he be able to to separate himself both from Pharaoh, who kind of is the the epitome of what a worldly king is supposed to look like at that time, versus Saul, who had so failed so miserable, so miserably. Sorry. So the the themes are pretty easy to see. Um, God hardens Pharaoh's heart, and um, this makes God an active participant in influencing Pharaoh's uh, intent and action. We're going to go into this a little deeper later. God incites David, remember that's verse 1 of 24, to number the people. And we find this, this word here, incite. We actually come across it uh, previously in 1 Samuel 26, 19. And this is David talking to Saul. And he says, if the Lord has stirred you up against me, that's, that's how the ESV has it. But it's the same word that. Uh, is translated as insight here. May he accept an offering, but if it be men, may they be accursed. So what we're presented is not with this inescapable will of God, where God dictates the person's heart and mind in these situations, but rather a circumstance where a person is invited to participate. David says, if God has stirred you up, I can offer a sacrifice. I, I, I can make a sacrifice. God can, can will accept it and we can be okay. So it, if the person, see if I can make this picture clear. So David's saying Saul is the one who's being incited. Now David can make the sacrifice to God and God is going to respond regardless of the fact that Saul has been incited. As a matter of fact, this might actually de-escalate the situation. And, and so David is saying he gets to decide and determine what's going to happen next because God has given, me a, given him a way to do it. I'm going to offer a sacrifice. I need to figure out why God has incited against me, incited you against me, or stirred you up against me. And if you remember back in verse one of Second Samuel one, God's not mad at David. God's mad at the people. 
So the people actually had a chance to step forward and say, hey, we need to offer a sacrifice. We need to do something to respond to God. Guess what? They didn't do it. And so um, we have some really interesting possibilities being presented here. Now, we do find the word hardened is included in 2 Samuel 24. Um, it's in verse 4, and it's a, you're going to read it in your Bible as, but the king's word prevailed. This is what he's been talking to, to, uh, Joab. to Joab. Yeah. Yeah. And Joab had said, you know, why do you do this? Why do you delight in this? Don't, don't do that. And so David, uh, it says the king's word prevailed, but that word prevailed there is uh, kazak, which is to grow firm, strong, or to be hardened. It's the same word applied to, to Pharaoh. And we are reminded of Moses before Pharaoh attempting to persuade him to release the people. And, um, you know, and it appears to me that the only reason why Joab's story is included, because it's really odd that it is included in the narrative, if you think about it, it it's a gentle warning. David did have a choice. Just like Pharaoh had a choice when Moses stood in front of him, David had a choice. He mm -hmm. could have stopped this. He could have done something better. He was not forced to do this action. And so, um, because if you look at the, the plagues, and this is what most people overlook, and they'll say, oh, well, God hardened Pharaoh's heart. This is why he did this. If you look at the plagues and you go back to Exodus, now from the first plague, you're going to find that Pharaoh's heart was definitely hardened. But if you notice, God doesn't harden Pharaoh's heart until the sixth plague and that's the boils before that pharaoh hardened his own heart mm -hmm. and basically god said you know he's already shown me what he wants and i think this boils because i don't know if you ever had a boil they hurt more than one would be absolute misery god says this is where he's going to crack i'm not going to let him crack because he's already shown me what he wants and i want to make sure he gets exactly what he wants Pharaoh made his choice. So a lot of times when you see people proof texting, oh, well, you know, they didn't have a choice because God did this or God did that. If you look back and look up at the events that led to that no choice moment, there was actually choices already being made. David made a choice. Now, God actually, you know, God incited, God stirred him up. God, God said, hey, you know, here's something you can do. But it wasn't because he was mad at David, and it was David responding in his own um, hubris, if you will, of being king, that he decides to do what Pharaoh did, and that is to harden himself against what should be done so he can achieve his purposes. And, you know, and we, we, we've seen this pattern, um, all of us know it, with Pharaoh Moses goes and stands before Pharaoh, says, let my people go. Here's what's going to happen. Pharaoh goes, yeah, I don't think so. God sends the plague. It, it's the same thing we see in, in um, 2 Samuel 24. And it's interesting to me that God doesn't harden David's, uh, sorry, Pharaoh's heart until the sixth plague. And it's not until the seventh that we have this interesting word of pestilence in the form of hail. And we've talked about that previously, that this word pestilence occurs both in 2 Samuel and in Exodus 9, that, that, that um, plague of hail. It's not an uncommon word. I want to be clear about that. So I'm not saying, oh, look, it's only found here. No, it, it's, it's a very common word in the Bible, but it's only one of two of the plagues that that word is used of. And we should note the plague itself is not called pestilence. God says in regards to what he could do, he actually says, I could have struck you with pestilence. I could have caused pestilence and cut you off. Um, and it's the, the word that we typically have applied to the plague that's translated as plagues is a completely different word. Uh, there's Dever, which is pestilence and Nagav, Nagaf, sorry, um, as to plague, to strike, to smite. But anyway, it's another interesting point about that particular plague. It's against the flax and the barley harvest. Mm-hmm. And that's going to be important when we get to looking at 21 and 24 together. Now, the pestilence in both Samuel 24 and in Exodus 9 in particular are limited in geography. 
that it, you know, the, the hail went throughout Egypt except for the land of Goshen. The pestilence was sweeping through Israel and stopped at Jerusalem. So we have limited geography. Uh, we have this shared hand language. God commands Moses to stretch out his hand, and that's how he instigates or initiates so many of the plagues. And God commands the angel of the Lord to stop his hand, to you know, unclench his fist is what it says. But the ESV translates that as stay your hand. Um, because of the speech that God makes prior to this plague, it's seen specifically to be the only plague that's delivered um, by God's hand. So this plague of hail, because God says, I could have stretched out my hand and brought pestilence. People think, uh, or the Jewish commentators have said, this is the only one that God actually initiated in an active way through his hand. Uh, David and the Pharaoh both say, Katati, uh, I have sinned. I, and that's an interesting point. Both the leaders will make this confession. Um, Pharaoh confesses of the sin after the pestilence is struck. David confesses before the pestilence reaches uh, Jerusalem. David repents, and you know, that's sincere, it's lasting. He offers himself up in place. Pharaoh's, of course, his repentance and it is gone the moment he sees the pestilence is gone, or, or the, the plague is gone. David saw the angel of the Lord and fell on his face. Pharaoh sees the pestilence, and that's whenever he repents. So, you know, David sees God and repents. I think this is a really cool um, distinction here. David sees God and repents, you know, in the form of the angel of the Lord. Pharaoh sees the evil and repents. So as soon as the evil is removed, then the repentance goes away. And you, that's a huge shift. You know, if you repent because you see the glory and goodness of God, it, it has an impact. If you repent because you want the bad things to stop or that you just don't want to go to hell, how long does that repentance last? It, a lot of times what we when we focus on, you know, oh, don't let that bad thing happen. Don't let me go, you know, be punished in any sort of way. That repentance goes away as soon as that threat loses its bite. You know, that's actually a pretty interesting thing because, you know, we have talked a lot about um, when we reduced the gospel to just your, you know, get out of hell free card um, mm -hmm. that a lot of times there is a lot of. I mean, and again, you can't, I don't know how to, I know we're getting in some murky waters here with this, but you know, you do have those, those false repentances or those temporary repentances or however you want to classify them. I don't understand all the mechanics on that, but anyhow, the, um, <laughs> but no, uh, that actually makes sense. Whenever it goes to something you're moving toward, you know, we see that, you know, we see the, we see God and what his plan is and then mm -hmm. moving towards it and working with him for his plan into something positive, mm -hmm. something greater than ourselves. Mm -hmm. That's really interesting because, um, you know, people have a natural tendency to work harder when they're working for something greater than just themselves. Yeah. I, I, and it's, it's, it's almost like it was put there on purpose. Yeah. Well, it really, I mean, if you think about it, I mean, think of, I mean, I'm a good example of this. I know several of my friends who are great examples of this. Before you're seeing, before you're, you get married, you're just kind of, you know, going around pay to, paycheck to paycheck. Uh, buying guitars. Buying, selling instruments, you know, <laughs> no, no savings, no real goals. But then you get married and then there's other people, there's another person in the mix that you're, you're taking care of. Um, and, and you and care not, about. And that you care about and that cares about you. And, and not necessarily that, oh, you're taking care of them. And, you know, I'm not, you know, you're, you're oh, taking I... care of each other. Let's, let's, mm -hmm. we'll put that conversation aside. But, yeah. and then, and then you have things that are like, oh, well, now I have to think about how my future is going to operate because now I have another person to think about. I can't just up and move to a new city on a whim. No longer do all my possessions fit in one vehicle. Um, <laughs> um, Nathan will tell you that story later, folks. <laughs> that's a, that's a whole nother season of my life. Um, but you know, it's, it's not those things. And then you're like, and then, then you also have, you know, especially for guys, you know, we have women have this thing that they want to do 
called having children a lot of times. And I know I'm probably <laughs> treading someone's going to think I'm a terrible sexist. But, um, <laughs> but you know, there's a time limit on that. And you weren't opposed to the idea. I was not opposed to the idea, <laughs> but I had no in, no idea that it was a reality until after I got married. Then you start thinking about these things that are running around your house and you got to take care of them. And then you're, you know, it, it, when you're working for something that's bigger than yourself, it, my point is, uh, <laughs> you, you tend to stick to it longer. And that's why I think it's ridiculous that when, when we reduce the gospel to, hey, this is how you get yourself out of hell, mm-hmm. then you're not, we're not challenging people to become part of something greater. It's, right. it's very uh, self-centered. And, and now, I believe there are people who came to Christ with that message, who got mm-hmm. to studying and looking and just absolutely fell in love with God and his kingdom and his people. And I think that that, you know, I think that that works. But I also think when we continue to just reduce it to that, you know, because I've, I've been in, I've been in churches where the, the message was, come to Jesus get yourself saved from hell Turn and then, or burn. and then once once you're you know welcome welcome to christianity take a seat jesus will be back at some point that's right. you know there's there's nothing else to do you know it's just god's waiting room basically well, is what the church and, and, becomes and then all you have to do is discredit the bible all you've got to do is say oh well hell's not real and now why do i have to listen to any of the bible i mean if that was my only reason for being there it is hell you know, when I say being there, being in church, being part of the covenant community is because I didn't want to go to hell, then it's so easy to pull people out of the Christian community away from faith because if they're just there for a threat and the threat's lost its teeth, why are they there? I mean, if, if they haven't been introduced to the, the wonders and the, the amazement that is God and, you know, is whatever level we can get to understand that in this human life, then why? Why? I, it's, I think we forget that people don't need another baseball bat over the head. We got enough of those in this world. Mm-hmm. You know, why can't we present a God who actually loves us? And so I say that <laughs> as I get ready to talk about you know, some of the other situations. And because I do, and I don't want to get stuck on this because I'm still working through this and I don't have the vocabulary for all of it to present a cohesive uh, statement right now. But this idea of balancing God's holiness and God's love, that the tension between his justice and his mercy, those are really big topics and those are really hard things to to try to explain. But a lot of times when we're looking at these these horrible events in the Old Testament, what we're looking at are displays of God's mercy, uh, judgment, but you're always going to find those pockets of mercy in there. You're going to find, you know, displays of God's holiness, but you're going to see this, these great expressions of love and mm-hmm. you have to be able to look at the whole picture to get there. And so that's kind of where we're getting with here because man, as I studied these two stories, uh, 21 and 24 in second Samuel, it wasn't until at one o'clock this morning, it finally hit me exactly how amazing these two stories are when placed together but we're only on page 100 of my notes and so we still got a ways to get there and if i had to struggle that long to get there i'm gonna make y'all fight with me so well, yeah <laughs> i do have another question oh, uh, no. okay. is, is there any um and I, I know you probably don't know the answer but i think it would be curious to look into is there any other theophanies uh of uh in Jerusalem, recorded before uh, the birth of Christ? You know, that would be really interesting to look into. I don't know the answer right off, but uh, yes, we do have some, and I, I, I'm thinking of a couple now, but I've got them jumbled in my head, so we will have to come back to that, and I'm sure we'll get back to that when we get into Kings. Great. So I'm, I'm all for it. Yeah, so <laughs> I'm just going to you know, stay there. Okay, so basically what we've got, we got two kings. We got Pharaoh. We got David. They're in the same pretty much exact situation. Uh, in Second Samuel twenty four one, God's angry at the people of Israel. This is why he has hardened David's or why David's heart has been hardened. Why he's incited David. Now, one of the things that has confused me ever since I was a kid was why in the world did God let the children of Israel 
be made slaves in Egypt? You know, I was never given a great answer to that. And we did talk about in our previous episode how Joseph actually wound up enslaving Egypt before all this happened. If you want to go listen to that episode, that's fun. But listen to what Ezekiel says. Listen to what he says about why the children of Israel had to become slaves in Egypt. This is uh, Ezekiel 20, verses 7 through 8. And I said, this is God, I said to them, cast away the detestable things your eyes feast on, every one of you, and do not defile yourselves with the idols of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. But they rebelled against me and were not willing to listen to me. None of them cast away the detestable things their eyes feasted on, nor did they forsake the gods of Egypt. Then I said, I will pour out my wrath upon them and spend my anger against them in the midst of the land of Egypt. And then Ezekiel goes on to recount the events of the Exodus that follow God expending his wrath on the children of Israel in Egypt. So we, again, both kings, same situation. God's mad at the people of Israel. This is why this is going on. And it just blew my mind that we had, it's like, when I found this, because I hadn't really paid it's, attention it's so to it. so clearly spelled it. out. <laughs> yeah. Well, and I know I've read it, but I never put it together. Because uh, Ezekiel's been one of those books that's fascinated me forever. It's a weird book. Uh, it, it really is. Hence why we're not going to do a book study. Heiser got that covered. I see. Uh, Dr. Heiser did one that was pretty, <laughs> pretty good, and I don't know if we can do any better. So then we have kings who begin a course of action. They, they, they harden, they prevail. Uh, the, the Hebrew word, like I said, Kazakh, under the influence of God's direction and involvement. We've got that laid out pretty quickly. We have that, that, that confession of sin, but the outcome is completely different because only David's uh, repentance was sincere. And so this is when David is shown to be greater than Pharaoh. And, you know, Pharaoh couldn't sacrifice himself for the people. He couldn't protect the people under his own care. David sees the devastation that's heading towards Jerusalem, and he, he just throws himself in front of that bus, so to speak, because he wants to protect and defend. He gets it. So, so that kind of gives us kind of an overview of those two stories. And then this is where things get really, really fun, because we have the four passages playing together. We got 2 Samuel 21, 2 Samuel 24. We have the Akeda. We have um, the plagues of Egypt. So uh, I'm going to start with connecting themes because I want people to see how these kind of, they do fit. So first of all, we got supernatural famine. Uh, three years of famine in David's reign in 21 and 20, 24, it's offered as an option. In Exodus 9, the famine is caused, why? Because there's a hailstorm when the barley is in ear is what it says. Now, not as obvious is with the Akeda. Where's the famine there, right? This is a good question. I'm glad you asked. Um, if we find out, if we look back to the story just prior, we find out that Abraham is hanging out with Abimelech. He is actually in the region of Gerar. Why do you go to Gerar? You go to Gerar because there's wells there. You go to Gerar because it's a fertile place. So you pick up and you leave where you were. Why? Because there's no food. That's what you do when you're a nomad. So not as clearly spelled out, maybe not famine, but definitely a scarcity of food that would have caused that kind of move. Um, now, and we need to remember, this scarcity of food has David, li I mean, not sorry, Abraham living with the Philistines which also connects us to David's story because he lived with the Philistines, but that's kind of an aside. We have divine revelation and direction. So David seeks the face of the Lord. That's in 21. David confesses to God and, sin, and um, God reveals the possible consequences. That's in 24. Moses before Pharaoh. He's got the, you've got the prophet, just like Gad coming back. And then uh, we've got God talking to Abraham directly. Go kill Isaac. So we have divine direction right there. We have guilt revealed. We've got Saul's guilt with the Gibeonites revealed in chapter 21. David's guilt in the census in 24. We have Abraham's, the way he valued his sons is revealed through the Akedah. Remember, he grieved when, when God said, send Ishmael out. The only son he prays for is Ishmael. 
Uh, he was displeased when he sent Ishmael out. And so he, we see how Abraham had elevated the Egyptian son above this child of promise through Sarah. So that's a form of guilt. Pharaoh refuses to release the people and is exalting himself. So God reveals Pharaoh's guilt in that. We have the connecting themes of slavery. Who were the Gibeonites? They had been enslaved under Joshua. So that's chapter 21. David numbering the people. We talked about how most likely that was for forced labor. Remember we talked about, we had that new guy in David's administration in the list of of, uh, the court officials that his particular position was over forced labor. Hagar um, was Sarah's Egyptian slave. And then we have Israel, of course, enslaved in Egypt. So again, all the stories. Um, obligations to those who are under someone's rule or leadership. Find those in all four stories. We got Saul's obligation to the Gibeonites as sojourners in the land of Israel. Guess what? They were supposed to get great treatment. That's in the Torah. We've talked about that before. Uh, mm-hmm. It's His actions are not excused. For, uh, you know, It says that it was... He did this in his zeal for Israel and Judah. David accepts the guilt of the people. And we're going to talk more about that. The people were guilty of something. We're not told what it was, but David has an obligation to step up and do something about that as their king. Abraham casting Hagar and Ishmael out with little to no provision. You know, we talked about that. Why didn't he send them out with, you know, some men, some camels, you know, gotten them to a place where they could exist instead of just leaving them in the desert? He had the, the uh, ways to do that. He had an obligation as their protector to do better. And then, of course, Saul's refused. And sorry, as Pharaoh. the father of the child. <laughs> right? Well, yeah. I mean. <laughs> <laughs> that too. You assume father, protector, it, it all fits. <laughs> sorry. <laughs> but, yeah. But then Pharaoh, who had, you know, the Pharaoh before had invited these people to come live in Egypt. Why? So that they would survive. And now this Pharaoh says, no, I no longer have to observe the the laws of hospitality. We have God's supernatural intervention for those who have been wronged. God sends a famine on behalf of the Gibeonites, not the Israelites, which I think is really interesting, but on behalf of the Gibeonites, because Israel had wronged them. Um, God saves Hagar and Ishmael. Remember, the, the angel shows up. First time we see an angel outside of the Garden of Eden, which is so cool. It's to this woman who's been cast away and who's a foreigner. Mm-hmm. And God shows up. Who shows up? The angel of the Lord specifically. Um, then we see God sending the plagues, specifically the rain and hail. You know, these are, um, you know, again, supernatural revelation. In Samuel 24, in 2 Samuel 24, we do have a deviation. This is where we see how big of a nerd I really am. So, um, you know, God gave David three choices. Mm-hmm. Uh, you got the three days, the three months, the three years, pestilence, flight, or, or uh, famine. But, and we still have that question, who is the party? Who, who's the party that God's going to intervene on behalf of? Um, because God's anger had been kindled against Israel, but then David messes up with the census. Um, God specifically says, I'm going to do these things to David. And David says, I have sinned, I've done wickedly, but these sheep, what have they done? And so the consequence of this action is the deaths of tens of thousands of people, not against David himself. And so we're going to get into why that's important. Bear with me. But we have another deviation in that the supernatural um, intervention occurs. In the other three interventions, it's all centered on water, uh, the famines, the plagues. It, it all has something to do with water, yet none of the three things that happen with David, well, aside from the famine, sorry, the famine is centered on water, but what David chooses is not centered on water, or at least it doesn't. And so that really kind of got me, it doesn't appear to, I, I, it, it got my brain going, okay? And evidently it got going too fast because now I can't even talk. <laughs> um, in Exodus 9, the, the hail is offered in alternative to the pestilence. It, it, it's what happens instead of pestilence. God says, I could have struck you with pestilence, wiped you off the face of the earth. Mm-hmm. And then he sends the hail. So it, the hail becomes a substitute. And so I began to wonder, what exactly is this thing we call pestilence? 
and so I began looking at if the Bible ever actually described what pestilence was. Um, and I began looking at what we know about it. Okay, so we, we know it works fast. In three days, 70,000 people dead, men at least, 70,000 people, men dead. Um, God says that pestilence would have completely annihilated Egypt. Okay, so it, it's deadly. It's distinct, but often listed, uh, linked with famine, sword, caterpillars, mold, and mildew. So there is a connection aside from the sword with things that we do connect with water. And yes, we do connect caterpillars with water because uh, if you've ever been in Oklahoma in a dry summer, all you're going to find are bagworms all over our trees. Uh, it, it, they do play off each other. Um, Pestilence almost always comes from God, or you need God's protection from it. God is is involved in one way or the other. Amos 4.10 offers an interesting um, bit of information. Pestilence stinks. He says, um, I sent among you a pestilence after the manner of Egypt and carried away your horses, and I made the stench of your camp go up into your nostrils, yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. So now, I mean, I'm thinking this sounds like something like cholera. I mean, if you look at what cholera does, I mean, it's acute diarrhea. It, it's it, it's awful. I won't even go into specifics, but you can find it online. I did. This is is the beginnings of a stinky camp. Weak people with explosive diarrhea who can't get outside the camp to take care of this issue, who are you just at the mercy of their bowels. There's vomiting, there's muscle spasms, there's so much that goes into it. It can kill in the man in a matter of hours if it's left untreated. The treatment for cholera is antibiotics and IV fluids. Not too many of those running around during the Bible times. It's seasonal, um, actually. We know in countries that deal with this frequently, the, the rainfall has absolutely every bearing on whether or not it happens. Cholera is waterborne. The primary cause is insufficient sanitation. And so if you are in the midst of a drought, what's the first thing you stop using water for? It's cleaning. You're saving every bit of that to drink. Makes sense. And so, yeah, it's just, but this means that what you do have is probably contaminated. If you care for someone who has cholera, what do you do? You wash your hands. Do you think people in the desert are going to be washing their hands with a commodity that's so precious in the middle of a drought? So the pestilence, I think, is still very much connected to the water. So I think that's another connection. Um, and like I said, most of the time, when do we find pestilence? It's linked with, with famine. So the idea of not having enough water. Now, of course, the other obvious connection, this is death, and it's death enacted and death diverted. Um, David hands the sons of Saul over to be killed. Um, that's the death enacted. The death diverted is the famine stops. Lives are saved. 70,000 men die under the pestilence, but Jerusalem is saved. Isaac is offered up, but then Isaac is saved. Mm. And anyone who listened to Moses and brought their livestock in before that plague of hail, their livestock was saved. Everyone else died. The land of Goshen, saved. So that's the beginning <laughs> of the connections that we have between these stories. And I actually, that was uh, number seven. I have 10 more that we're going to look at before we're done. But I see we're, we're starting to go over time. And to me, it's just, it, this is the stuff that I love. It, it's finding those connections. And this is where, I mean, I had to stop myself at some point. These are just what I see as kind of big glaring you know, neon signs flashing. This is, look at us together. Mm -hmm. <laughs> we're, we're in unison. And I'm sure that if someone sat down and actually went over this with a fine tooth comb, they would find more connections and deeper connections. But I think what I've got is actually going to demonstrate quite well why these stories need to be put together in our mind and understanding whenever we're reading Second uh, Samuel 21 and 24. Because when you've got all this background and this context that informs how you read Samuel, 
now all of a sudden Samuel is going to make sense, but you know, you aren't going to need all that prompting. And Samuel's, uh, the person who wrote Samuel expected his audience to know these stories. These stories would have been taught with every feast and festival. Mm -hmm. These would have been part of their, you know, their day-to-day talks. This is not just their national identity. This is their individual identity. And this is very core to who these people are. So, you know, maybe we need to integrate some of these stories into the core of who we are and our personal identity. So just a thought. Yeah. So. Well, that was a very dense episode. <laughs> um, I, it was good. I just saw a lot of information to take in. So I have we to got run. more next week. Yeah. Well, it, the good news is I get to listen to it a couple more times while I edit. So um, <laughs> there you go. Anyway, but uh, no, that that's kind of, I, I Wish we didn't have to take a break because it does seem like a lot of this needs to fit together. But, um, you know, you can it always run it, it back is. again if you have to go over it before we get to the next thing. Um, Listen to me stumble again. <laughs> yeah. And if you have any questions about it, uh, comments, uh, anything like that, hit us up on the website, ravencreeksc.com or ravencreeksc on the website. Um, no. Ravencreeksc.com is the website, ravencreeksc on the social media. I think I said the same thing twice. Um, and three times now, um, but yeah, so find us Put there this in somewhere on their computer. We'll come up. <laughs> Look, yeah. If you Google Raven Creek social club, you should be able to find us. Um, there's faith and other oddities, faith yeah. and other oddities. Um, yeah, you're going to find us there. And, uh, we we're curious to hear what people have to say. Come be part of the conversation and we will have another show for you. Lord willing next week. Thanks. Bye. Bye. Faith and Other Oddities podcast, a Raven Creek Social Club production. Don't forget to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. If you like what you've heard, please write us a review on iTunes or consider supporting us on patreon.com slash ravencreeksc. As always, thank you for listening and don't forget to join us next week. the open wallet podcast an exploration of personal finance i'm katie a numbers nerd and i'm joe a 40 year old punk rocker and And we're we're married married. we're here to talk about and figure out all the personal finance questions we all deal with like how do i read my pay stub how do i dress better on a budget how do i start an emergency fund what goes into buying a house and lots more so join us on open wallet podcast on itunes or wherever you find podcasts